0: Francisco, how many of you saw Elf, Francisco. Sorry, if you're not an Elf fan, you don't know what in the world he's talking about. Francisco Culant was a Spanish Baroque painter. About 1630, he painted this valley of the vision of Ezekiel. And it's an interesting painting because what he pulls together in this one image is a pretty comprehensive sweep of a very complicated book. Um, the area when Ezekiel wrote this was called Tel Aviv, and that's not the same as modern-day Tel Aviv, but it perhaps is in the region there around there. Um, and he melds quite a bit of the account of the book in this picture, even with one little homage. There's a skeleton man, so the Valley of Bones. Some of us know that story perhaps more than we know the story of Ezekiel. And at God's command, these bones are going to live, which of course is. is it's a We've talked about a tell. A tell is a city that's rubbled and rebuilt and rubbled and rebuilt. I want you to think of theology in the same way, in the Bible, in the same way. We're looking at things, and then they're built upon, built upon, built upon. So when we talk about prophecy, it had a meaning in the context, but it also has layers of meaning as we go forward in the Bible. And of course, only one person can make dead men alive, and that's Jesus Christ. But the primary uh, analogy was pointing to a city that is going to be destroyed completely. And only God can, if you will, resurrect, quote unquote, that city that is dry bones, it's decayed, it's in the ground, nothing is left but the skeletal remain. And God, of course, can raise the dead. Ezekiel prophesies uh, during a time when the Jewish exiles are in Babylon. And Christy mentioned three prophets, and I'm going to come back to this briefly. I don't want you to get lost in some of the timelines, because they are contemporaries. And she's right. We don't know how well they knew each other. I believe they had some relationship. Judah isn't that big. Uh, so it would be unlikely that prophets and priests would not know each other at some, in some relational capacity. We're just not privy to those details. So he's going to write uh, during the decline and downfall of the city, but his ministry is going to point forward. A real simple way to remember it, and Christy mentioned it as well, Uh, Jeremiah is a man of tears, Ezekiel is a man of visions. And I have actually written both those phrases over the front page of each of those books. Jeremiah is a man of tears, and Ezekiel is a man of visions. Uh, He goes from horror to hope. And I remind you again and again and again, these men uh, and women living at this time, they would not see what was promised and prophesied. They're going to live a short span just like we are and die, and they're not going to see the outcome uh, in their lifetimes. Um, a helpful way to look at the book, and I'm going to give you a number of handles because it is perhaps one of the more complicated prophetic pieces. And so I'm going to give you a couple of frameworks. These are four broad strokes. The renouncing of the Jews. The prophecies against enemy nations. The prophecies after Jerusalem's destruction. And then the prophetic vision of that's bound to the book of Revelation. And so if you step back and just look at those, he's covering a lot of ground in these broad strokes. First, there's the judgment and the word of God that's coming to them because they have not repented. He is going to prophesy against them. He's gonna use enemy nations to bring about this destruction. And then in the future, there will be a new temple complex and that will be bound to the book of Revelation. Uh, So these three or four ways of looking at these prophecies helps me as I come to a book like this that frankly is harder than Isaiah or Jeremiah to get through because there's so many different topics and sub-themes within the book. Um, The closing visions of the book are parallel to a number of passages in Revelation, and I put that on the slide for those of you, and this would be a real easy devotion to do this week. Just to take a, make a photocopy or on your computer, Ezekiel 38 over against Revelation 20, verse 8, and then uh, Ezekiel 47, the first eight <coughs> verses, compare and contrast with Revelation 22, the first two verses. And it will astonish you how the Bible continues to be a unit and how these prophecies. There are many, many more for those of you who are BSF precept. CBS uh, folks, those of you who just like studying your Bible, uh, it's, it's a sinkhole when you get into this, how many of the things Ezekiel refers to are referred to in the New Testament by Paul and other authors as well. Um, it, it's noted that Daniel is 14 years uh, after the deportation. So again, we've got these contemporaries. Think about these guys living at a time when they overlapped along with Noah as well as Job. They would have, we could say, known each other at some point. It is a complicated book. Jerome, uh, the great scholar, translation scholar, by the way, sidebar, for those of us from a Catholic background, uh, there are six so-called apocryphal books in the Catholic Bible that aren't found in the Protestant Bible. Jerome was perhaps the most brilliant translator that uh, lived in that time period. And he argued against those books being included in the canonization of scripture. And if memory serves, uh, they waited until Jerome died before they canonized the Catholic Bible. He was so influential of a scholar. But Jerome's comment on Ezekiel is quite telling. Um, He calls it a labyrinth of the mysteries of God. A labyrinth of the mysteries of God. Uh, Because it was so complex and it was so obscure, uh, many rabbinic traditions uh, forbade men to read it until they were of age 30 because it was just too complicated and too difficult to comprehend. Ezekiel is singular in the frequency with which he talks about the Pentateuch. No other prophet refers so much to the first five books, which when we think of Torah, that's a big word, but generally speaking, we're talking about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, the first five books. And Ezekiel refers more to the Pentateuch than any other author, which is striking when you think of all the ground that he does cover in his text. Let's talk about some high overview, general observations about the book that might handle, give you some better handles as well. And I've already mentioned Jeremiah, Zechariah, Ezekiel are uh, contemporaries, but they're also the only prophet-priests. You have prophets, you have priests, you have kings. There's only one who will hold all those offices of prophet, priest, and king. So when someone has two of these titles, uh, remember when when Saul is prophesying, and they go, is Saul among the prophets? Because a king, prophet, that didn't happen very often. That you have these two offices, three offices, only in the person of Jesus. But Jeremiah, Zechariah, and Ezekiel are prophets and priests. And that comes uh, comes into color when you read the book. Because what does Ezekiel spend a lot of time talking about? The temple complex. Who knows about the temple ministry? Priests. That's his day job, so to speak. So when he writes about the temple complex, it's fitting in this new vision of this new Ezekiel temple that you're going to read about. It's complicated to understand. That Here's a priest who would have known the drill, so to speak, before it's destroyed. He sees the destruction, and now he's writing about a future when it's going to be put back together in a new way. And so it would be fitting to have a priest do that, right? Um, When you think about inspiration, the Greek word is theophanoustos, God breathed in 2 Peter 3.16. He breathed, and these prophets wrote the book. We talked about many times the big A author, God, and the little a author is the person in this case Ezekiel, or Paul, or Peter. So you've got the big A author and the little A author. And we differentiate that because there are styles that you can pick up in Johannine literature. There are styles in Davidic literature. You can see uh, the way they write. There's actually vocabulary unique to the, to the Apostle Luke. So you, you've got these, these pictures of a big A author God writing to, uh, through the vehicle of a little A author, in this case Ezekiel. So if, if if his profession is a, a fig picker, if his profession is a warrior, if his profession is a priest, it would make sense the little a author is going to talk about his worldview, right? So don't overwork this, but we're still it's still inspired by the big a author, but the little a author has fingerprints, if you will, on the manuscripts that he is penning. Um, Ezekiel's prophetic ministry lasts about 22 years. And one of the things I've been doing in this study for my own benefit is not looking at the date so much as the time span. This helps me a lot. I think I've mentioned this almost every Sunday is how long a time. So he's 30 years age. We have good timestamps in Ezekiel. So he's about 30 to 52 when his ministry is done with this piece of literature. So you've got a pretty short run in some respects of what he's writing. On the other hand, it's kind of a long time when you think about the siege and the laying in front of the brick for over a year and so forth and so on. Now, during these final years of Ezekiel, he's in Babylon conducting this ministry. So the exiles have gone to Babylon. We read in Jeremiah Lamentations the destruction of this beautiful complex, the place where God was going to put his name for them to worship, has been destroyed, dismantled, cut up, and if you will, melted down and reused for whatever Babylonian gods they might have. And so this message falls on deaf ears, but his message in the future is about something they'll not live to see in, in their lifetime, of course. The fall of the city prompted the change in his message, and that's when the transitions go to the vision, and Ezekiel's going to talk about the future then of Jesus' restoration. Third is the chronology. The chronology of Ezekiel, he has the most precise chronological arrangement of any prophet we talk about this all the time. This, book was, this chapter was probably added later and that's where critical scholars say, well, the Bible isn't really trustworthy because this chapter was obviously added later. This didn't happen in this part of the book and the author has it here. And that's what scholars do, they debate these things. Uh, Ezekiel's chronology is pretty tight. And so for those who, who are you know, kind of oriented, I like to have a sequence. When you watch these movies now, and I don't know um, some of you are in this world, everything flashes back, and it drives me nuts. Three years ago, <laughs> way, 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 now I've got to go back and see what I'm supposed to, or two days ago, or 15 hours before. It drives me nuts when I'm watching a movie. Well, that's what happens when we read some of these books. They're a little bit out of sequence. And so Ezekiel is a very accurate chronology, if that is helpful for you. Again, the structure of the book, and I'll give you a shorter version in the first four, and this is the judgment of Judah the judgment of Gentiles, and the restoration of Judah. And this, of course, brings up a topic I'll talk about more in a minute. is how God uses enemy nations to discipline Israel, and yet he will hold them accountable. And that's one of those tensions we live with. Uh, God's glory and God's name are perhaps the most prominent theme in this book. And I'm going to read from uh, chapter 126 to 2.4. You can follow along on the screen or in your copy of the Bible. Ezekiel 1 verse 26, now above the expanse that was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne, like lapis lazuli in appearance, and on that which resembled a throne high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. Then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upward something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward I saw something like fire. And there was a radiance around him. As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. And that to tell to the man of Revelation, when he sees the angel, angel of the Lord, he fell on his face like a dead man, what a great picture. I fell on my face and I heard a voice speaking. Then he said to me, son of man, stand on your feet that I may speak with you. As he spoke to me, the spirit entered me and set me on my feet. And in my sanctified imagination, he is so overwhelmed with the glory of God, he's dropped and he physically does not have the strength to stand up and it takes the spirit of God, if you will, helping him to stand up physically. Then he said to me, Son of man, I am sending you to the sons of Israel, to a rebellious people who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. I am sending you to them who are stubborn and obstinate children, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord. So if God's glory and God's name are the, if not the, one of the most predominant themes. Let me make some observations. And again, when we've talked about this before, when you read your Bible and it's overwhelming, look for repetitions, look for restatements, look for recurring phrases, referring, recurring topics. Because if the author is talking about something a lot, That's probably what the book is about. This isn't that hard, right? If you're you're in high school or older, you can learn Bible study methodology. And the most simple baseline is to watch for repetition, restatement, recurring vocabulary. It's really pretty fun and it's pretty easy. Fifteen times uh, God speaks that he acted for his name's sake. It's a peculiar phrase that he does something for his name's sake. Uh, and, and I loved, and Jason and I did not coordinate it, so we give credit to the Holy Spirit of God and, and however else you want to talk about it. But his opening remarks are, are in tandem because the believer in Jesus Christ, and I don't mean to be unkind or hard, but just my observation last decade, it's all about I, me, my. I call it horizontal Christianity. Uh, what God's doing for me and my and I and my passion and my vision and my heart in this, this horizontal orientation. And this is unique to the West. We're obsessed with I, me, my. And we should be more concerned about him. So to get out of our I, me, my, when you think about he does things for his name's sake, are, the, are we the beneficiaries? Yes. But is it about us? Not so much. It's about him. If you remember when Isaiah, we talked about he forgives us for his name's sake. I remember the first time reading as a young Christian, it just tripped me up. He doesn't forgive you and me of sins to make us feel better. That's a benefit. That's a a wonderful benefit of the believer to not live with a guilty conscience, to know we're forgiven, but he forgives us for his reputation. He forgives us for his name because people who look at Yahweh Elohim in the Old Testament and say he forgives his people and doesn't punish them retribution or capriciously like other gods might, little G gods. He forgives his people. He loves his people. He protects his people because they're good. We just read how obstinate and stubborn they are, how obstinate and stubborn we are. He does it for his name's sake. And that's back to fall on your face theology. Why does he forgive the likes of you and me? That's a question you should ponder. Not to be morbid or depressed or you know, beat up on yourself, but to think through uh, biblically, theologically, critically, why in the world would he forgive me for all the stupid things I've done and continue to do? Sure, because he loves me, but because his son died in my place on my behalf instead of me, and it's his reputation, if you will, that's not the best way of saying it, but that helps me put my brain around It's for his reputation when something is done for his name's sake. Sixty times the word of the Lord. Again, it's the most obvious thing. And we miss it all the time. We miss the common re- repetitions. The word of the Lord, the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord. God has spoken, and as my professor Howard Hendricks says, he did not stutter. <laughs> now, that would be politically incorrect today. That's why I'm quoting him. He said it. I didn't say it. God has spoken, and he has not stuttered. His word is clear. The Mark Twain uh, probably paraphrased, quote, it's hard to find the actual uh, citation. And ain't those parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me? It's the parts I do. It's pretty plain. It's pretty clear. And so when we read the word of the Lord, we should almost stop. The book you hold in your hand is the very word of God. There's no other book on the planet that comes in second place. He spoke. And isn't it, if you step back further, he spoke and we have it in so many languages, it's not even funny. And all we have to do is hear or read it. Anyone on the planet can do one of those two things. Even a blind and deaf disabled person can learn to read and hear, quote unquote, the scripture. The most basic form of communication, God gave us his word. And then, of course, it's personified that Jesus is the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Sixty-seven times the Lord intervened so his people will know that I am the Lord. I'm doing this so you'll know it, that I am the Lord. I'm trying to remind you one more time that I am the Lord. Ezekiel 38, verse 23, I will magnify myself, sanctify myself, and make myself known in the sight of many nations that they will know that I am the Lord. Back to the plagues. What's the argument? What's the polemic we call it in literature? Is Pharaoh God or is Yahweh Elohim God? That's the whole story until the Exodus proper occurs in chapter 14 to 15. Who's God? Pharaoh or Yahweh Elohim? He says over and over again that they will know that I am the Lord. That I am the Lord. Pharaoh ain't God. He may call himself God. He may call the son, the firstborn son, God. That's a veiled false religion over against my firstborn, Jesus Christ. Not the first physically born, but the first primacy, the first in rank, the first in title, the eternal son of God. 126 times we read, thus says the Lord, again, in tandem with the word Lord. God saying these things, I mean, early in ministry, I would have people come up to me and they would, Encourage me. God told me to tell you this or that. And they want encourage me. I always loved that. And, uh, you know, you know, Quite, I mean, people are sincere. I don't mean to be completely dismissive. But it's a little intimidating when some, you know, person, the Lord told me to tell you. And I wasn't always kind. And I said, well, I'm waiting for him to tell me. I mean, maybe he told you, but I'm going to wait till he tells me because you're not the intermediary. Um, And they didn't like that much. (laughs) But they never left the church. I never figured that out either. Thus says the Lord. God speaks. Do we listen? It's God's word. When I was a young Christian in Houston, I went to this little church called Bethel Independent Presbyterian Church. Bob Tolson was the pastor. And... um, he would, he would talk about the Word of God in a way that it just rocked my world. When God says something, it's not up for debate. This is the Word of the Lord. It should stop us in our tracks. We shouldn't be cavalier to it. If God says it, it's a cheeky bumper sticker, I believe it. That, that settles it. I mean, it's a little bit too colloquial, but you get the point. And a very important note that doesn't occur as number of frequency, but it occurs 93 times as a reference to the Son of Man. Now, you know uh, a little Hebrew, right? You know the word Ben is son. Benjamin, the son of Yamin. This is Ben-Adam, Adam. Adam. So 93 times uh, in your Ezekiel Hebrew text, he's referred to as the Son of Man. That's really significant, because who's going to be called the Son of Man? Jesus Christ. In fact, it seems to be Jesus' preferred self-reference when he talks about himself. The Son of Man came to do this. The Son of Man came. The Son of Man is here. He doesn't outright call himself God's Son, but he does in so many words. Um, It comes as no surprise that God's prophets are going to call God's people to account. Rarely do we read a prophet's recommendation. Hey, you guys are doing a great job. The prophets come out to judge, to confront, to call them to sin. And if you say, thus says the Lord, and the Son of Man, you go do this, it's heaping on of this you know, God's authority, if you will. 157 times the land is mentioned. This is a remarkable study. Um, And depending on your persuasion and background and, and how you've been You know, taught theologically, the the land is a big topic in the Bible. Back to the uh, unilateral covenant with Abraham, that I will give you a land. And that's a unilateral covenant that I believe is unbreakable. Now, when we come to Judges, we begin the book, much of the land had not yet been taken, basically. They had a lot of work to do. Joshua's coming on the scene as Moses' second leader, and they're going to go up in the land, and Caleb and Joshua are only two old men still living in their 80s, and they're conquering the land. And, of course, Judges doesn't go so well. And one could argue how much of the land Israel ever possessed, and I have some dear, dear friends who we disagree completely on this subject. I think the land is still in play. I think the land is still important. I think God sense of humor that this little tiny piece of land, smaller than the state of Connecticut, With the Mediterranean Ocean on one side, with Syria and uh, Lebanon in the north, with Jordan on the other side of the river, Egypt in the south, and and to the south of them. I mean, the Middle East is like this big, this little tiny piece of Connecticut over here. And to me, it's God's great sense of humor that they are hanging on their fingernails on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea with nowhere to go. They're not trying to go across the Jordan. They came the other direction to get the so-called promised land. Now, no matter what you think of the land, whether it plays a part in the story or not, it's mentioned 157 times in the book of Ezekiel. Not all of those are talking about the land of Israel. That's a more complicated study. But the point Ezekiel's making in the land of the Canaanite, the land of the Amorite, the land of the Philistines, juxtaposed against the land that I gave you, where I put my name. That's why it's important going back to the name of the Lord being the recognition of this all. Ezekiel is another prophet who warns him that judgment is imminent. He's got a horrible task ahead of him. he's going to be maligned and abused and a lot of, of prob- a lot of problems are going to fall his way. Let me just I didn't put these on the screen because I just want to scan through some of these things beginning in chapter three of Ezekiel um, He said to me, son of man, eat what you find. Eat the scroll and go up and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he fed me the scroll. What a word picture, what a a vision picture of um, you're going to ingest my word and you're going to speak my word. That's the point. He said to me, son of man, feed your stomach and fill your body with the scroll which I am giving you. Then I ate it and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. Then he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you are not being sent to the people of unintelligible speech or difficult language, but to the house of Israel. Nor to many peoples of unintelligible speech or difficult language, whose words you cannot understand. But I have sent you to them who should listen to you. Yet the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, since they are not willing to listen to me. Surely the whole house of Israel is stubborn and obstinate. Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces, and your forehead as hard as their foreheads, like like emery, harder than flint. I have made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them or be dismayed of them, though they are a rebellious house. Moreover, he said to me, son of man, take into your heart, all my words which I speak to you, and listen closely. Go to the exiles, to the sons of your people, and speak to them, and tell them whether they listen or not. Thus, as the Lord. You got a job to do. Were they going to pay attention or not? Then the spirit lifted me up, and I heard a great rumbling sound behind me. Blessed be the glory of the Lord in his pl- in his place. Then I heard the sound of wings the living beings touching one another, and the sound of wheels behind them, even great rumbling sounds. And again, these allegories and pictures, I think um, a literal interpretation of Scripture is very important. And when we come to Ezekiel or Daniel or Revelation, we need to be careful not to over-spiritualize it, but not to minimize it or take it away, just because we were in the context when those words and terms were used. That doesn't take a lot of study to realize he's hearing what sounds like an angelic host moving around and whatever wheels would sound like in in that time, probably wooden wheels on gravel and sand earth. The Spirit lifted me up, took me away, and I went embittered into the rage of my spirit, and the hand of the Lord was strong on me. So twice, verse 12 and verse 14, the Spirit of God is moving him to do this. Then I came to the exiles who lived beside the river Kibar, Abib, And I sat there seven days while they were living, causing consternation among them. And at the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, I've appointed you a watchman to the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, warn them from me. Ezekiel's going to have a very interesting message here as we continue in the chapter. Basically, he's going to say, Ezekiel, you tell my word. Or you're going to die. Oh, that's encouraging. He knows what he's up against. Secondly, Ezekiel, if they don't turn, they're going to die. Ezekiel, if they turn, they will live. Ezekiel, you go tell them, or I'm going to kill you. If they don't listen to you, I'm going to kill them. If they listen to me, they're going to live. That's the message in a nutshell. Of emphasis, somewhat unique are his visions because of the temple complex, as I noted, he's a priest. He sees this to a different lens. If you've not been to Israel, it's hard to envision uh, the Herodian complex that we look at today. It was much after the time of Christ, uh, the time of the Old Testament, at the time of Christ. You said the Herodian complex, the big plaza. But to envision this temple complex where worshipers went up the southern steps every year at least three times a year if they were pious, God-fearing adults, they all went up for Passover. They were supposed to. And this was his, this was his day job. He understood the pasturing of animals eight miles south in a town called Bethlehem. He understood the sacrificial system. He understood the water, the amounts of water that had to be brought in. to clean all the blood from this bloody business called sacrifice. He understood dealing with the ashes of the animals. He understood the priest's role in this process. And that's his home, if you will. And Ezekiel's visions are revealed to him about the glory of God leaving the temple, but there'll be a future when the temple will be beyond imagination. You could truly say God has left the city. Because when the temple complex, the tabernacle, is where God meets man, where His name is, and now He leaves the destruction of the temple, and we await Ezekiel's vision and revelation for Christ's return. We don't need that temple for sacrifice like we they used to, but we see that as God's footstool, place where He'll return to. And again we're confronted with the tension that God uses enemies to discipline His people. And this is one that I don't have any simple explanation for, other than God's sovereign and I'm not. He's He's going to use enemies to discipline His own people and then hold those enemies accountable for what they did. That's not in my judicial system. I don't get that, but it is in God's economy. And the only way I you've heard me says for the only way I can sort of begin explain it to myself and maybe to others is that these people hated. God. They hated God's people. They hated Yahweh Elohim. They had their own gods, their own idols, which is of course a big part of the story as well. The whole idolatry system that continued to invade Israel. And God said, you'll have one God. You won't make any images of Him. All the other religions have multiple gods and endless idols. Egypt, they've chronicled something north of 8,000 unique idol names. You think the uh, Star Wars characters are hard to keep up with. Think about 8,000 idols and gods in Egypt. No, there's one God, one monotheistic God. And so over against this this relationship that they had with him, um, he's going to use people that hate Yahweh Elohim, and they hate Yahweh Elohim's people. And again, go back to Pharaoh. Is Pharaoh God or is Yahweh God? That's the question, which, by the way, continues all the way through the Bible. And when it becomes New Testament time, it's are you God or is he God? In the moment we say, I could never believe in a God who, we've just made God in our own image. That's the hard reality of it. Well, God's people are going to be dispersed into exile. He will not completely abandon them, but it'll be a far distant future before he'll restore them. Ezekiel 36, 24, for I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. And so long in the future, there'll be this calling back. If you were alive in the 70s, when the Jews for Jesus movements were, were huge, Messianic Judaism, Zionism, Jews were moving back to Israel. There's a whole geopolitical story, a guy named Herzl and others, who wanted Jews to come back and repopulate Israel, or it would, it would, have, it would have gone to other hands. And so when you go to Israel and go to Yad Vashem, which is their Holocaust museum, it means a name and a place, Yad Vashem, and you go through this incredible, I mean, you could spend days in this place. It's, it's enormous in the, in, the, uh, in the different times and pictures and, and footage they have. You really, you can spend days in it. It's, it's overwhelming, it's depressive as all get out. But when you walk through Yad Vashem, a name and a place, this is the place God chose to put his name and in the end of time, he'll bring people back. Well, in the 70s, they thought, this is it. The Lord's coming. And there were a lot of people, a lot of prophecy uh, hounds that thought, this is it. God's going to return and establish his kingdom. And these things come and go. Give it 10 years. These, these theologies and isms, and you know, they come and go. Give them a decade, see if they last. But there's always this swing And we saw a lot of attention to Judaism and Messianic ministries. And a lot of people came to Christ and a lot of people relocated back to Israel. Uh, It didn't happen in fulfillment of Ezekiel 36 yet, but it will one day. Now, again, with every book of the Bible, uh, to me, themes are important. This one, perhaps more than any. And so I've got seven lessons that they aren't quick. They're short, but they're not quick. Uh, Number one, God is faithful to his faithless people. Um, Why God continues to uh, love Israel? Because he made a promise. He made a unilateral covenant promise that they were his people called by his name, a stubborn and stiff-necked people, and God is going to be faithful to them even when they're faithless. And boy, as a believer in Jesus Christ today, I'm glad he's faithful when I'm faithless. Secondly, God is holy when his people are yet unholy. I mean, you can think of so many stories in the book of Ezekiel and other stories that you might recall when they're dabbling in unholy things, unholy fire, uh, witchcraft, immorality, idolatry, child sacrifice, eating their own children, for goodness sakes, all the horrific things, nothing new under the sun. Uh, you probably saw the news this morning, this boy that killed, basically killed his whole family in Utah this morning, a teenage boy. And the father is the only one, he's wounded in critical condition, and the boy is in handcuffs. This stuff happens. What, what do you do with this? We're unholy people, and He's a holy God. He's set apart, and aren't you glad that His holiness makes you and me holy? I don't understand that. God's judgment brings God's righteousness and mercy, and this is the two-edged sword. Perhaps the best picture of uh, justice is the two-edged sword. To administer justice, you cut the guilty in order to administer justice. Uh, 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 recompense to the victim. So, the easiest illustration we all know is when the baby is brought to Solomon and he says, Bring me a sword. And if I, my memory is fading, but I think it's just two words in Hebrew bring sword. And we've all seen depictions of that two soldiers holding a child by his legs and they're about to cut the child in two. The sword brings justice, the sword cuts to punish the evildoer, but the, the cutting of the sword on both edges gives uh, liberty, gives freedom to the victim, makes righteous the victim. Fourth, God will judge his shepherds. And any of you have been around churches with elders or have if you've been an elder, um, this is one of the most chilling parts of the book is to read about God's faithless shepherds. I mean my lands. When we read James' comments about not many of you become teachers, because you incur a stricter judgment. Anybody wants to teach the Bible for a living or in a home study or whatever needs to have your head examined. Whether you like it or not, you're speaking for God, and that's dangerous. I, I used to do some pastor's workshops from time to time, and I would, I would tell these young pastors, use the word seems a lot. <laughs> it seems to me. I can't be bulldogmatic, but it seems to me. Because one day you're going to cross that threshold, and I imagine pretty quickly know all the things that you said were wrong and that you were forgiven for. But as a young person who opens the Bible or in a Bible study or you lead a a group or precept, whatever you do, thus says the Lord is pretty heavy stuff if you're wrong. God will judge his shepherds. Fifth, God's glory departs, yet God's glory will return. And this, again, it seems sort of ethereal and a little bit super mystical out of our, our, our you know, knowledge. We don't think about God's glory that much, but um, when it departs, everything goes to pot. And when the city's destroyed, again, I think I referenced last week or the week before I've slept since then. But, you know, if, if, if D.C., the O.E.B., the 17 acres, if Chicago, if Dallas, if L.A. were all taken out in one day by an enemy, literally there's nothing left there. Chemical nuclear weapons dropped on those areas. EPMs go off on our grid. How would we feel? How would we respond? How much more when the temple of God is destroyed? The very center of where he said, I'm going to put my name so you can worship me, has been erased. And think of the pious, believing Jew who was certainly in the minority, but they loved God. They loved God's word. They were Yahweh followers. They got nothing now. And that's what would happen to the so-called remnant. Uh, six, God is patient toward his people, and aren't we glad? Aren't we glad? Um, sometimes these things come across in email or some of the news feeds. I watched uh, a woman recently uh, abusing her child with this video camera taping her. And, you know, the, the uh, old man, uh, redneck man, I mean, wants to go, just take her out back and put a bullet in her head. You don't kick a child for whatever reason. And um, boy, I'm glad God's patient. Because when parents lose patience and yell and scream and say hurtful things or pick up a stick or something else and hurt a child, because we're out of patience. If God wasn't patient, I doubt many of us would have made it to our 18th month. And finally, God's land is as sure as his word God's land is as sure as his word. I have dear friends who disagree with me completely on this. In fact, they think I'm not only wrong, but heretically wrong. I sat at a table, I've probably told this story before, but it bears repeating. I sat at a table in D.C. many years ago, when Cindy and I lived in Northern Virginia, Washington, D.C., and we were invited to an event, and there were these round tables of eight or 10 pastors Most of them were uh, art reformed, Anglican, a couple of Baptists. I was the token Bible church dispensational weirdo. (laughs) And rather than talk about the latest movie or whatever, which is fine, I threw a question on our table, and I knew most of these men. And I said, uh, is the land, somehow we talked about Israel, and I said, is the land important in God's scheme? Is it play a role in the end, or is it just a piece of dirt? It doesn't really matter, because a lot of people... They have a certain uh, training, hold that view. Land doesn't matter anymore. And uh, so they went around the table, and they all answered it. And essentially none of them thought the land played a role. I don't think any of them had been to Israel. That's the second point. Uh, but the, the gentleman who sat to my left was the one who was organizing this event of about, I don't know, 80 people or so. And um, he's sitting right beside me. He's with the Lord now. But he's sitting right beside me. He goes, well, Michael, given your, uh, given your parameters, it's more than a piece of dirt, but not much. And this was the guy running this big event and I thought to myself how can you read the scripture and not see the land playing a prominent role now I, it's not like I have to put a stake in the ground and say this is Israel and that's the border and the Palestinians or either don't have a right or do have a right or all those political co- that we see in, in, in the news if you will God told Abram he was going to give his people a land And from that land will come Messiah, and it would bless the world. And Ezekiel paints a picture of a future where that land plays a role, as does the book of Revelation, unless, of course, you allegorize or spiritualize or take those out, which, again, I'm not mad at people who do that. I disagree with them. But um, it's a place where he put his name, and that's important not because the Jews inhabit it, or who, you know, whose land is it anyway? That's the big debate. You know whose land it is? It's God's. It's not the Palestinians, it's not the Jews, it's not the people who live there today. They're just tenants. They're just renters. It's His land. And again, to me, the importance of that when I read this book or a book like this where it talks about the land so prominently, is it goes back to God's Word. If He said that this was His land, if He said this is the place He's going to put His name, if He said He's doing it for His name's sake... That should reassure you and me. We call these things the promises of God very glibly. But that should reassure you that you can trust him. You and I may not in our lifetime see things rectified and justified the way we want. But this book is not going to change. And the outcome is not going to be altered. You can trust he's going to put his name where he wants to. And the place that he wants to. And it's as good as his word.